The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us is James Kerchick, author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which is out right now. And it has so many fascinating historical nuggets that I had not known before. Good morning, James. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited for this conversation because... I didn't know this history, and I'm sure most people listening this morning probably didn't know much of this history. And so this is the kind of thing that we love um, on this morning show, when we can learn things about American history that we did not know before, um, which is, turns out it's a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but one of the things, the first question I had, which is basically like, who are we talking about here, right? Because you're going back to... Um, early administrations. We're talking about FDR and the mm. Cold War and Nixon. So we're going back into American history a few decades back. And we're talking about the, the people that were sort of living in the shadows um, yeah. because homosexuality was um, at that time um, not an accepted thing to be and, and to be, you know, out and particularly if you're in a position of power. So sort of give us the sort of foundation of who we're talking about, like what, what types of people um, and what positions were they in? Um, who, are you, who are you talking about? Yeah, well, we're talking about a, a period of time when homosexuality was not considered only a sin uh, or a mental disorder or a crime, but a national security threat. And that's the reason why I chose to begin with the Roosevelt administration with FDR around World War II, because prior to that, you know, homosexuality was disapproved. It was condemned in the Bible. Uh, It it was considered a medical diagnosis by the medical establishment and whatnot. But with World War II, it suddenly becomes a national security threat. And the reason for this is because America is becoming a global superpower. It's entering the world as a major player, and it's starting to develop a national security state it's developing an intelligence community, uh, and it needs to collect and protect state secrets. And the fear is that if we have gay people in sensitive positions in the government, that they will be vulnerable to blackmail, and they will give precious national security secrets away to our foreign adversaries because they have this very deep, personal, shameful secret that they need to protect, and they'll do anything to protect it. And so the book opens with a very, you ask about, you know, were these powerful people? The book begins with the story of a very powerful man, Sumner Wells, who's the undersecretary of state for FDR, basically the second most powerful man in the State Department. And in 1940, he's riding on the presidential train and he he gets rather drunk and starts propositioning some of the porters on the train. 
the porters are also African-Americans. So there's a whole racial component to this as well, which makes it even more dangerous. In addition to being a, a gay scandal, it could be a racial one. And the news of this, the sort of gossip about it spreads uh, to some of Wells's enemies within the administration who try to then use it to get him fired. And it takes several years. FDR is, is very loyal to Wells and wants to defend him. And he does defend him for several years, but the, but the threat that this might become public uh, becomes too much for Roosevelt to handle at that point, And he forces Wells to resign before it becomes public. Um, so that's when the book begins. It's so fascinating. I, I did, that, was a, that was a piece of American history I didn't know, um, yeah. that I had never heard before. Um, and so, you know, what it, it, it leads me to is sort of thinking through how many times did this happen where not not necessarily like the blackmail that they were afraid of, of like, I guess, a foreign government using this information um, to to blackmail someone, but but sort of how they utilized these rumors against people to purge them from yes. their positions um, to to prevent, I guess, the potential for alleged blackmail. It's a great point you raised, Erlina, because there's actually not a single example in the history of the United States of a gay person giving away secrets to a foreign power because they were blackmailed. They actually, the Defense Department did a study of this in the 1990s after the Cold War had ended. And they went through over 100 cases of, of government officials or government workers in some capacity, you know, violating the Espionage Act. Um, and there was only six examples of gay people ever doing it, and not one of them ever did it because of being blackmailed. They might have done it for money or for the other reasons mm -hmm. that people betray their country, but not a single example of any gay person doing it for the reasons that they were um, being prevented from serving in government jobs for. And that's what would happen is that actually all these cases of homosexuality being used against people was used by our government to purge them and to prevent them from serving in government jobs. And so in 1953, one of the first executive orders that Dwight Eisenhower signs, it's executive order 10450, and it bans any gay person from holding a job in the federal government uh, and, and bars gay people from having security clearances. Uh, and there are thousands of people, we don't have the exact figures, but there are thousands of people who are purged uh, from the government, from government, various government jobs in the 19. 50s and 60s, all the way up to 1975 was, was the year that the civil service um, lifted its bar on gay people being able to work in federal government jobs. I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting that you, you mentioned that they, are, they did look at um, the cases of where people did violate the Espionage Act and that mm -hmm. even the fear, like nobody was, <laughs> everybody was doing it for money. <laughs> That's really the reason yeah. people were doing it. Um, nobody was doing it for the reason they, they had feared um, right. and they're purging all these people. The other aspect of this though, is that it wasn't just purging of people from the government. Like some of these people ended up dead in really mysterious and mm -hmm. questionable circumstances. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that? Because I think that's sort of what makes this more like a feel like espionage, -y, like thriller in, in terms of a read um, the book versus just like a historical retelling, because when you're talking about people winding up dead that were in the American government, um, that that um, I have a lot of questions about how that yeah. what well, happened there. There were a lot of suicides, you know, in the climate, um, the climate for gay people in America in the 1950s. I compare it to basically being uh, 
in a police state. I mean, if you were gay, particularly if you were a gay man, because your, your sexuality was very heavily policed, um, you know, your mail was being opened because it was deemed obscene. You know, gay magazines uh, were deemed obscene, right? So they were seized by the postal service. Um, if you were trying to hold a political meeting, if the early gay rights organizations that were just forming in America, they were uh, infiltrated by the FBI you know, very similar to the civil rights movement as well at the same time. Um, you were being arrested. I mean, your very existence was, was criminalized. And then if you're in the government, uh, there's, there's a purge out for you. There's a hunt um, going on for you. So, you know, the, I, I open up the, the Eisenhower section of the book with a, with a story about a man who was in the State Department. He worked, he was the head of the Finnish desk. And the first week of the Eisenhower administration, he hangs himself because he's terrified that there's going to be a sweep. Uh, there's one story I came across of a man who was being interrogated for being gay uh, by a State Department investigator. And he's fired right there on the spot. He walks out onto the street and shoots himself in the head. Um, there are many suicides of government workers during this period, some, some of them quite mysterious. Um, and of course, when someone commits suicide, you never, you can never really fully understand it, right? I mean, just the depths of despair is very difficult to, to comprehend. Mm -hmm. um, but we do know that a lot of these people were doing it because either they were gay or they were just assumed, they were just accused of being gay. I and mean, that's the other thing is that these accusations didn't really need evidence. I mean, you could just, collect hearsay from from people from bureaucratic rivals they might remark uh about the way someone walked right maybe he walked a little funny he walked with a sort of a effeminate gait. i mean these are sorts of these sorts of comments come up in these security investigations and it just becomes a a, a state of of moral hysteria and panic uh in washington in the in the 1950s i mean this part of it is what is wild i mean like just because there's question I mean there's still questions around some of these that are deemed suicides but they're very it's very odd for this many people within the American government I think um you know to to die by suicide but I think the context that you added is important in the ways mm -hmm. in which they had to navigate the time um in terms of the people that you're talking about how many of the people are documented that we actually know were 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 gay and and had acknowledged that not maybe not publicly but um there's there's sort of documentation of that and how many of the people that you sort of researched it was rumors because part of what i imagine at the time is maybe even people who presented in a particular way um or you know behaved in a particular way maybe they were suspected of being homosexual but they actually weren't i mean how how much um, in your research, did you find people who f fall into that latter category? And, and, you know, in terms of the people that you do talk about, because there are two people, I believe, in the book that you, um, you know, they're, they, they're no longer with us. And so you're, yeah. you're confirming that they're, they're gay. Um, but how many of the people fall into that other category where they weren't, but they were just suspected of being gay and treated yeah. um, that way? It's hard to get definite numbers on the number of people who were pushed out of government during what was called the lavender scare, which is sort of a uh, ran ran in parallel and for much longer actually than, than the red scare. 
number there the number of uh, estimates or varies between seven to ten thousand people um, in total. It's hard to know just because not every government department kept uh, very good records on this. It was mostly the State Department that would report every year. You know, we've expelled. 91 sexual deviants this year. And then the next year they would report numbers. You have to understand every federal agency was required to do this. So it was it was a lot of people. Um, and yes, there were absolutely people who were falsely accused. I mean, one of the uh, most high profile cases I talk about was Dwight Eisenhower's nominee to be ambassador to the Soviet Union in 1953. And Joe McCarthy, who was the senator from Wisconsin, uh, the Red Hunter, who was really the leader of the Lavender Scare, he basically made charges that this man, uh, that this nominee was a homosexual. And it was all based on, again, sort of hearsay, speculation. It turns out this guy was married to children and had, had a very vigorous heterosexual life. But this, this was really the most deadly political accusation in Washington at the time. I mean, if you could... Um, prove or impugn someone's reputation as being a sexual deviant, um, you could you could pretty much destroy their their career. This is so wild. <laughs> this is so wild that this was all happening. Yeah. I mean, when when you when you think back on um, the ways in which people had, to, if you were actually gay, not the people who are suspected, but if you were actually gay and you had to navigate. I mean, speak to the ways in which people had to keep the, their orientation a secret and the ways in which they went about doing that. If they were in these positions, um, I mean, because like in some instances, the person they work for, whether it be like President Nixon, like they knew of their orientation, but they had to sort of yeah. keep it a secret from everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, there's a story I tell. I mean, one of the men that I out, uh, and again, I don't, this person has been dead for a while, so I don't think that there are ethical issues. Uh, it was a man named Ray Price, who was, who was, who was Dwight Eisenhower's chief, uh, excuse me, uh, Richard Nixon's chief mm -hmm. uh, speechwriter. Um, and I, I, I do it because I think it's important to, to see that Richard Nixon could have a chief speechwriter uh, whom he knew was gay. I mean, other Nixon aides who I interviewed for this book told me that President Nixon knew that his chief speechwriter was gay. And yet simultaneously, you know, you listen to the tapes, the Nixon tapes, um, of him in the White House talking to his aides, and he's just engaging in the most, you know, vulgar homophobic discourse. Um, and it's sort of similar with other minority groups, right? So like, you know, Nixon was obviously very racist. At the same time, he was instituting affirmative action programs, mm -hmm. the first president really to, you know, to, to really in, 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 in increase them and, and, and to support affirmative action programs across the federal government. He would engage in the most, you know, vulgar anti-Semitic tirades um, on the on the tapes among some of his aides. Yet, you know, he supported Israel in a very important war in 1973. So there's this kind of dichotomy, right, where publicly the policies of the administration are one way, and yet, you know, privately he can tolerate um, or even have friends and, and close supporters and aides of his who are Jewish, gay, and whatnot. Um, and you see this a lot throughout the book. You see presidents have gay friends, quite close gay friends or mm -hmm. gay advisors whom they know are gay, or maybe they don't know, but they don't ask, right? It's kind of very don't ask, don't tell. And they're certainly willing to benefit 
from the expertise and the very hard work of the gay people who worked for them. Yet their public policies are, you know, totally homophobic and are leading to, uh, you know, purging gay people from, from government service. So it's, I mean, Washington is a city, as you know, that, you know, really is fueled by hypocrisy. And I think on this issue, the issue of gay people in Washington is really kind of, at least in the period of that, that my book covers, is really one that's defined and uh, epitomized by uh, hypocrisy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so it, it's so fascinating. Um, one of the other questions I have is how sort of the idea of homosexuality, just even the fear of it, mm. shaped um, how how our presidents behaved and how the administrations behave on a policy level. You you already sort of alluded to the hypocrisy of you know Richard Nixon being sort of racist and homophobic, but then on a policy level doing some good things on those fronts. Right. But but also, I think, you know, sort of the idea that there's, you know, a secret blacklist of people that, are you know, are being hunted. There's these mysterious suicides happening over the course of decades. Um, that has to have an effect on what we what we as the American people see in terms of our presidents and their administrations. All of that in the backdrop has an effect. Yeah, I think in small, well, there are like individual cases that in, in, in the way that it affected policy. For instance, I talked about Sumner Wells, FDR's undersecretary of state, who was purged, really the first person purged because of sexual orientation in the government. He was a very strong supporter of the plight of the Jews during the Holocaust, right, in the early 1940s, uh, in terms of supporting policies that might bring more Jewish refugees fleeing Hitler. You know, it's a counterfactual, but had he not been sent out of the government, perhaps the you, the U.S. government would have accepted more Jewish refugees in the 1940s. We don't know, right? Um, in the 1950s, there was this paranoia and fear of sexual deviance, and enormous amounts of government resources were spent tracking down, identifying, hunting, firing, you know, purging gay men and women from the federal government. How much did our government in our country, how much did we lose by not embracing the talents of all of our citizens, right? How much, uh, how many foreign language experts or, you know, technical expertise or scientific expertise or just general talent um, was denied our country because we didn't appreciate, because we discriminated against people, right? And this applies to any minority group whether it's women or African-Americans or Latinos or you know, anyone who's been discriminated against, it's not just bad for them. It's not just bad for the victims of the discrimination. It's, it's terrible for the country as a whole because you're, you're denying, uh, you're, 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 we are denying, we did deny our country the talents of people who are patriotic and wanted to serve. And I think it's something that we really need to learn about so that we ensure that it doesn't happen again. I mean, it, it's important to point out the patriotism because the question I have, and I mean, it's only a question I have because um, I'm not the person experiencing this, but why would you work for the federal government if this threat were out there? I mean, I think that goes you to know, the, the amount of yeah. patriotism these folks had, knowing that, you know, that it was so treacherous. I think it's very similar to Black Americans who fought in World War II. I mean, they served in segregated units. They were, they, were, they were being told, you know, you are not equal, and yet they still fought for their country. And I think that's an incredible example, because 
it shows that you know these people, whether they were African Americans fighting in World War II or gay Americans who wanted to serve their country, that they understood the values that the country claimed to stand for better than the people who were claiming to stand for those values. Mm. I think you know. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're willing to serve your country in spite of the way your country treats you, you are basically saying, I've read the Constitution, mm -hmm. I've read the Declaration of Independence, I know what these documents mean, and I am standing up for them, you know, it, better than you people who claim to be defending them. So I think it's a very inspiring example. And I hope that my book does that. I hope that it in, inspires people about the real bravery and, and determination of, of these gay men and women um, who wanted to serve their country and did, in spite of huge obstacles. Uh, one of the other questions I had is sort of how you think about what's happening right now, because, you know, obviously we're post uh, Ogrefell, so gay marriage yeah. is legal and um, was ruled by the Supreme Court, but now that, you know, sort of is all on the line. And then you have, I think kind of weirdly, <laughs> uh, this state level and local level attack on on trans kids, um, on gay people, the ability to even talk about sexual orientation um, in the classroom. You have the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, but there are other iterations of similar um, pieces of legislation on the state level that are essentially, I don't know, legislative versions of sort of the lavender scare, if you will. Mm. Um, how, how do you think about what's happening now, given the fact that you just worked on a book that documents all of this um, pretty recent American history. Um, yeah. You know, this is not, I, you know, when you talk about Nixon, that's not a long time ago. Like my parents were right. alive for that. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. Well, I basically see this history as being generally moving in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. And it's basically two steps forward, one step back. And I think what we're going through now is a, basically a backlash to the increasing visibility of LGBT people. And because I've written this book, I can look at the kind of wide perspective. And so, you know, the book begins in World War II. World War II was a very important moment in gay American history because it was a, a time when a lot of gay people were meeting other gay people for the first time, right? They were being shipped off to cities to fight in a war. You know, San Francisco then, be, that's when San Francisco becomes a kind of gay Mecca as we have all these people going there because they're sailing off to Asia. Um, people from rural parts of the country who had never, who thought that they were alone. Um, so World War II has been, had, it's been referred to as a national coming out moment, okay? And then what happens in the next decade? Uh, there's the backlash, there's McCarthyism, there's the lavender scare, there's the sex panic. And it's, it's in reaction, I think, to that gay visibility that we saw in the years after World War II. Then in, you know, 1969, the Stonewall Uprising at a bar in Greenwich Village and gay liberation that's happening in the early 1970s. Harvey Milk, one of the first openly gay elected public officials. You see gay people kind of coming out of the closet. They're becoming more visible in American culture and society. And then what happens? The rise of the Christian right, evangelical Christians, the Reagan era. Um, it's a backlash to that gay visibility. Then in the 90s, we have Ellen coming out on television. It's a big deal. You have gay people coming into the Clinton administration, which is the first time that, there, that there's been openly gay people working for a, for a president. It's a huge advance. But then we have George W. Bush's attempt to put anti-gay discrimination in the constitution, the federal marriage amendment. So I, I see this recurring pattern of advances 
and then there's a backlash. But if you, and so I think right now we're, we're in the middle of a, of a backlash. There was a poll and I, I would point to a poll that came out last year, the Gallup poll, which showed that the percentage of Americans who self-identify as LGBT had doubled from 2010 to 2020. And so I think that's been, you know, it's been sort of disconcerting for some people. It's frightening. They don't know how to comprehend it. Uh, and they're acting out, they're reacting to it. And that's what we're seeing now with this don't say gay bill in Florida and other measures. But on the whole, I'm generally optimistic because if you just look at the place uh, that gay people had in this country, in our society, in the 1950s, or when my book starts in the 1930s, we're talking about a people who were, their very existence was illegal, it was illegal to be gay. They were condemned by the medical establishment as mentally defective. They were condemned by every religious denomination. You couldn't even utter the word homosexuality usually. There was always a euphemism that people would come up to, to describe it. It was such a shameful taboo subject. And to go from that to where we are today, I think is just an incredible story. Um, and it makes me ultimately optimistic. So I'm, I'm, I don't like what's going on right now in some of these states. I obviously don't like this rhetoric of, of this groomer rhetoric that seems to associate gay people with being pedophiles. It's really ugly and awful. But if you look at the broad sweep of American history, it's hard not to be um, optimistic on this issue. There's very little to be optimistic about right now in the world. I'll, I'll grant you that. But Look, there's a lot going on. I mean, but, uh, but you know what? I'm glad that we end with the optimism because I am an optimistic person. And yeah. even though there's a lot going on and it feels like everything's falling apart at the seams. Like there are other points in American history where it did feel like this and we still progress further in the right direction. Um, You know, the backlashes come every, like you said, they come when there's progress. So part of, part of what we're living through is the backlash to progress. We can't forget that because that's actually a good thing. That means progress has been made for the backlash to even exist. Um, James Kerchick, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate, enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. I hope the audience at home also learned a lot from this. Definitely pick up this book uh, because it's a history that you need to know because I I think that um, I think that uh, American history, it's unfortunate that they're trying to take a lot of it out of American schools because the thing that I've actually gained the most from (laughs) in terms of understanding the world is actually understanding my own history. Um, and then relatedly world history and, you know, the history of other parts of the world, but your own history, I think is essential. The book is secret city, the hidden history of gay Washington. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I hope you stay safe. Thanks for listening to mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 